The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. Dharma, incomparable, profound, minutely subtle, pervading the entire universe, revealing right here, right now, is rarely experienced, even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. We can see it, we can listen to it, we can express and know it. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true meaning. How you doing? <laughs> so before I continue, I have to get something off my heart. I want to express from the deepest part of my being, my sincerest gratitude, my sincerest affections for everyone in this room who over the past year, prayed for me, sent me food, sent me encouraging letters and emails. As most of you know by now, uh, over a year ago, January of last year, I began to get ill. And exactly one year this month ago, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. This past Tuesday, my doctors informed me that the cancer is in remission. So thank you. You, you all worked miracles, so thank you very much. So why don't we begin the night then with a meditation. So if you will sit up in your seat, place both feet firmly on the floor so that you can feel the earth supporting you, and close your eyes. I'm going to guide you through this meditation, so just bear with me. Just take a moment to settle in, to fully arrive, and become familiar with the seat you occupy, with the space in this room, with your thoughts, with any bodily sensations, or mental formations. Just begin to just relax into your posture, allowing yourself to let go of a few moments ago when you arrived, and most certainly of the illusion of some tomorrow. And if only for tonight, if only for this moment, Embrace the very thought, the very notion that all there is is now. And what we do with this now, what we do with this moment, matters. So let us all take a deep breath and hold it till I count to seven. One, two, three, four, 
seven, and release. Breathe normally for a moment. And breathe in. Hold your breath. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and release. And continue to breathe deeply into the area behind your navel and keep your mind's awareness <coughs> on your breath as it feels entering your body and exiting your body. Once again, take a deep breath and hold it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and release. Once again, continue to breathe slowly and deeply, following your breath. Stay with your breath, breathing in, breathing out. Follow your breath. And if for only just this moment, embrace the notion that all there is is now. And in this very moment, in this very place, in this sacred space, the whole world exists. The past, the present, the future, all here, now. Stay with your breath. Breathing in, breathing out. continue to follow your breath, I want you to recall a time in your life, possibly most recent, possibly longer ago, when you absolutely felt as if you belonged, whether it was family, whether it was friends, perhaps a time with nature, Wherever it may be, recall a time that you absolutely felt that you belonged.
Now recall a time that you loved someone and you knew this with your heart and every bone in your body. And this love made you radiate, made you thrive and excited for life. And while you're at it, recall a time that you absolutely knew you were loved. Perhaps by a single person, perhaps your family, perhaps the whole community, perhaps the universe. Recall a time that you loved someone and a time that you knew you were loved. Continue to follow your breath, breathing in these memories as if you are carrying them to the cellular level of your body where you feel them again and again and again. Nothing lost, nothing gained. The whole universe is enlightened and awake to this very moment, to these very thoughts, as you hold them within your hearts, within your minds, within your body. Continue to follow your breath, breathing in love, breathing in acceptance, breathing in prosperity, breathing in wholeness and longevity, breathing in life. And as you exhale, extending all of that and so much more those in your memories who you love, to those you care about. And now perhaps extending that beyond to your neighbor, to the one you know, to your left or to your right, and to the ones you don't know. Just as you wished at one time to know you belonged and knew it. Just as you wished at one time to know you were loved and knew it. Extend the same wish to your neighborhood, 
strangers, to your children, to your spouses, to your family, to the people you work with. The whole world is in this moment waiting for you to share what only you can share. Following your breath as you breathe in, continue to breathe in the memories of love and belonging. And as you exhale, imagine your breath carrying that wish for the whole world. those who agree with you, to those who don't, to your fellow believers and to non-believers, to those who accept you and to those who don't, on this very, very special weekend, we share our life, our love, our hope for the world. Continue to breathe in and holding it in the bosom of your heart and your body and your bones and your cells and releasing all of that, all of that to everyone, known and unknown. force that enters your body through each inhalation and sharing that life force with everyone in the world through each exhalation. this moment a prayer. We make this breath upon which the prayer will be shared. That all beings everywhere, young and old, healthy and not so healthy, parent and child, spouses, friends and enemies and neighbors, strangers and those we know, nations throughout the world, that they may be reconciled. That all beings everywhere may be free of sorrow and suffering and the causes of sorrow and suffering. that all beings may be content.
and possess the causes for contentment and abundant prosperity. That all beings may live in peace. This is our prayer. This is our intention. Open your eyes. This is the blessing we cannot speak by ourselves. This is the blessing we cannot summon by our own devices, cannot shape to our own purposes, cannot bend to our own will. This is the blessing that comes when we leave behind our aloneness, when we gather together, when we turn toward one another, this is the blessing that blazes among us when we speak the words strange to our ears, when we finally listen into the chaos, when we breathe together at last. Here is one thing you must understand about this blessing. It is not for you alone. It is stubborn about this. Do not even try to lay hold of it if you are by yourself, thinking you carry it on your own. To bear this blessing, you must first take yourself to a place where everyone does not look like you or think like you, a place where they do not believe precisely as you believe, where their thoughts and ideas and gestures are not exact echoes of your own. Bring your sorrow. Bring your grief. Bring your fear. Bring your weariness, your pain, your disgust at how broken the world is, how fractured, how fragmented by its fighting, its wars, its hungers, its penchant for power, its ceaseless repetition of the history it refuses to rise above. I will not tell you this blessing will fix all that. But in the place where you have gathered, wait, watch, listen, lay aside your inability to be surprised your resistance to what you do not understand. See then whether this blessing turns to flame on your tongue, sets you to speaking what you cannot fathom, or opens your ear to a language beyond your imagining that comes as a knowing in your bones, 
a clarity in your heart that tells you this is the reason we were made. This is the purpose of our existence. For this ache that finally opens us, for this struggle, this grace that scorches us toward one another and into the blazing day. I am absolutely convinced, whether you understand it or not, that we are here tonight because we are meant to be here tonight. That we are here tonight together, whether you understand it or not, because we are related. We are here tonight because the world needs us to be here, to be together. Because the world we know now, the world as it is, as we have it in our thoughts and our daily existence, is the one we've created. Whether we understand it or not, either by allowance or by our thoughts and our words and our actions. And we are here tonight and I am convinced of it because we have the power to change it. Just as we had the power to create it, we have the power to make it different. We have the power to make it into the stuff of our dreams, the stuff of our hopes for ourselves and for our children. But we must own that power we must be willing to stand up and use that power to make that difference, to heal our world, to bring us all together into what exists for so many millions of people currently, just a dream, just a thought, just a notion. And so we began with a simple meditation whether you understand it or not, dated centuries old, all the way back to the time of the messiahs, of the prophets, of the Buddhas, of the Mahasattvas and the Bodhisattvas. Yesterday, today, and those who will follow after we are gone. A meditation for happiness and well-being, a hope, for liberation from suffering and its causes. But even they knew, and when you read of their lives and, the, and of their history and of their work, the evidence is there. Even they knew that all the hopes and all the prayers and all the dreaming and all the wishes had no power without action, without a willingness on their part to act sometime in ways beyond our imagination to bring it about. A dream yet to be fulfilled. A dream handed on to us as we slept quietly in our safe beds at home at night, 
For as we reminisced and thought of days past and maybe one or more of those days to be renewed and repeated again. But as we must now, because we have been brought together for that purpose, as we must now believe we have the power to bring about. So over the last four or five months, we have been taking a specific look at this notion of community the guiding light and spirit of this community, the monks of Pinewin, and millions of other monks and nuns and priests and clergy and lay people throughout the world who dream of a world where one day such words as brother and sister will be more than just vocabulary, more than just language. And last month, if you remember and if you were here, you heard me call for the need of a new language. You heard me say that if we are ever going to achieve this dream, if we are ever going to create this world we imagine and hope for, we need a new language. We need a new way of relating to each other. Now usually when we think about the notion of community, the very word itself often sets us up with a kind of idea of a spiritual aspect of it. And while this is true, that community is indeed part of spirituality of any truly spiritual being and the desire to create community, I want to share with you for a moment a re representation of community that extends beyond that notion. And I want to strongly encourage everyone to get a copy of David Brooks' book, The Second Mountain, The Quest for Moral Life. And as I read this particular part of the book that I'm going to share with you, I was reminded of my childhood. I was reminded of my ages somewhere around my daughter's age right now, who is nine years old. And I lived in Northeast Philadelphia. And I want to share with you his vision of community in the world. A healthy community is a, sick, is a thick system of relationships. It is regular, dynamic, organic, and personal. Neighbors show up to help out when your workload is heavy and you show up when theirs is. In a rich community, people are up in one another's business, know each other's secrets, walk with each other in times of grief and celebrate together in times of joy. In a rich community, people help raise one another's kids and these kinds of communities, which we were typical, which were typical in all human history until the last 60 years or so, people extended to neighbors the sorts of devotion that today we extend only to our immediate family. Neighbors needed one another 
to flourish and survive, to harvest crops, to share in hard times. A person enmeshed in a rich community will have a neighbor who helps her get a job interview when she is unemployed. A teenager feels isolated at home, but there's a neighbor whose door is open, so he hangs out there. In a rich community, there's often a Miss Tompkins, a strong older lady who seems to be around all the time, who tells teenagers when to turn down the music and tells little children to stop running near the cars, who holds people accountable and enforces community norms. Everybody sort of fears Miss Tompkins, but everybody loves her too. She's the block mother, effectively the mayor here. In these kinds of communities, the social pressure can be slightly overbearing, the intrusiveness sometimes hard to bear, but the discomfort is worth it because the care and benefits are so great. When academics talk about this kind of community, they use the term social capital. The term is not great. Sociologists sometimes try to borrow the prestige of economic economists by using hard economic sounding concepts. The phrase social capital suggests that the thing it measures is quantitative, but carefully is primarily qualitative. A community is healthy when relationships are felt deeply, when there are histories of trust, a shared sense of mutual belonging, norms of mutual commitment, habits of mutual assistance, a real affection from one heart and soul to another. Whew. Sounds unfamiliar, but really not. I can remember growing up in such a neighborhood in Northeast Philadelphia and I can remember those numerous times coming home from school, running from the school bus into the house knowing that my mother would have the dinner ready and always sitting on the oven was a pot of gravy with meatballs and sausages and on certain occasions more than I knew any of us were ever going to eat in one sitting. Only to have her call me to come over to gather the pots that she covered with aluminum foil and the bags of pasta instructed to take them across the street to Mr. Nolan who just lost his job so that he and his family would have something to eat that night. There was a Mrs. Tompkins who lived in my neighborhood. She threw newspapers at us, rolled up. <coughs> when we would run in and out of the traffic playing kickball or stickball, if you will. And in, don't even mention to me how they knew what we were doing in the alleyways mm. when we would play combat or some other games. We need a renewed effort and it must come from the people. It will not come from Washington. It must come from your neighborhood your homes, 
your schools, your places of gathering, a renewed effort to get up in each other's face and remind each other we are related. Now, whether you understand that or not, a fundamental teaching of Buddhism is the interconnectedness and interdependency of all existence. You and I come from one source. Call it God, call it Buddha, call it universe, whatever you call it doesn't matter as long as you are aware that you and I come from one source and we have been related for timeless generations. We are related now and we will be related long after I or you are gone. And we need to act as we are related. We need to understand, as Nike Buddhism teaches, that the only way we're going to start this change is to just do it, is to just declare like they declared in 1776 on July 4th that we would be independent, we must be willing to make the declaration of our interdependency and our interconnectedness. None of us, none of us can do this alone. None of us get out of here alive. And we all are part of the same state of life the ship of life. And we all must do our part to straighten out its too long period of poor navigation. It will take courage, first of all, because we have become complacent and lazy and comfortable in our isolation, in our independence. When those men and women of 1776 declared independence from another tyrant existing of that time, they did it with the intention and the dream that we would arrive at e pluribus unum, out of many, one. That was their intention. That was their dream. Now, David Brooks suggests that that dream was real, except for the last 60 or so years that people knew what it was like to be a neighbor, that people knew what it was like to be a parent to not only your biological children, but to your neighbor's children who may need your parenting at a time when other parents or their parents in particular may feel too weak or unable. Two weeks ago, I did something that I regret I hadn't done more often before then. I make no excuses for it. I spent a whole day with my father. We took a ride together to his hometown where he grew up to lay palm-made crosses on the graves of my aunts and uncles, my grandparents, his grandparents, his parents, and so forth. And as we made our way back from this total six-hour round-trip uh, event, uh, we drove past the farm that he remembered growing up on in the summers of his life. And he shared with me stories. And we walked on that farm as far as we could because it has new owners. 
and he shared with me stories going up and stories coming back. And by the time he shared his last story with me, pulling into the driveway of Pine Wind to drop me off, I was full of tears. And I told him I was sad. I was sad, I said, Dad, for all of us. Oh, if I only had the power to bring everybody I knew and loved to the experiences that he shared of family and neighborliness and, and coming together to help during the harvests and in those difficult times. We need a renewal of this in our country and in the world. If not now, when? How bad does it have to get before we are willing to wake up and say, no more? Because it doesn't have to be this way. Now, I am by no means suggesting that my childhood or everyone else's childhood in this room was you know, one of Disney. It certainly wasn't. And not everyone got to experience the neighborhood that I described and that David Brooks write, writes about yesterday or even now. But we can if we really want to. As spiritual people and as people of faith in this room tonight, especially on this weekend of Passover and Easter, isn't it time for us to look deeper for the real deepest and most profound meaning of these holy days and these practices of meditation and prayer. Wednesday morning at the 9.30 sitting that I handled for Genjo because he hurt his back while my back was hurting, I told the few people that were there that morning that the real meaning of this spirituality, the real meaning of our religious faith the real meaning of meditation and prayer and intention and mindfulness has to do with the fundamental conviction of all of these great teachers and masters, of this teacher, that your life matters, that all of life matters, that not a single person's life does not matter. I am convinced, as many of you in this room who have heard me over the years teach and repeat myself over and over again, that your birth was not some random happening on a particular birthday. That the very second, the very day, the very week, the very month, and the very year of your birth was prepared and intentionally and meaningfully and purposefully took place. That you were born for a real meaning so much more than just the pursuit of some personal happiness. And that, that pursuit, I often ask people, how is that going for you? you see? And that perhaps it is time, whether you have began or have not yet began, to get serious about asking yourself, what is that happiness I pursue? Both in his book, 
David Brooks and all of the great teachers have said it can be found in only one place. It can be known in only one place. It can be discovered in only one place. And it can be sustained in only one place. And that is relationship. Relationship is what drives us from the moment of our birth. I will never forget that day of my own daughter's birth and watching her behavior on that very first day of her birth in that delivery room with both me and her mother. While the doctors were cleaning her up and preparing to hand her over to her parents, I was there watching everything about her. When they finally swallowed her in a, in a kind of towel and laid her down before me to pick up, I put out my hand and she grabbed my finger. She grabbed my finger. I lifted her up in my arms and I took her over to her mother and I watched her as I laid her, in her into her mother's hands and, and bosom. Her move in as if she knew us forever. And since that day, as her parents, we have been trying to do our very best to convince her her life matters and that her coming we knew was prepared and purposeful. And I know that she will forget, just as I forgot, just as you forgot, the wondrous reality of your true existence, true existence as the Buddha declared it, wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles. Nothing is ever lost about you. There's nothing more you need to gain, he said. You are Buddha as all beings are Buddha, born a Buddha, born enlightened with everything you need, everything you need to be happy, to be content, to love and to be loved, and to do what your birth was purposefully designed for, purposefully designed for, to make a difference in the world, to bring healing where healing is needed, to bring reconciliation among those you watch in your family and among your friends still going at it. To tell those who would prefer hate, no, not me. To make a real difference in the world. This is the meaning of this weekend. The stories of Passover are about liberation from greed and and, and uh, alienation and separation from disenfranchisement from the gifts of the world owned only and shared only by a few while others go hungry. The story of Easter is about the, your power, not just the power that Jesus had, but your power, a power even greater than death itself. But we have to own it. My job and the job of my fellow monks in our robes to my right and in that and throughout this room that you have encountered in your times here is hopefully just to remind you by our own behavior. But we cannot do this alone, just like it is not going to come from Washington and neither is it going to come from the skies. 
I often say to people, we have already been given the solution. What the teachers and the masters of old are waiting for is for us to use it. For us to use it. We need to become Mrs. Tompkins, wherever Mrs. Tompkins is needed. In the icon of the Bodhisattva of Compassion, the highest consciousness of Buddha's teachings, her statue, when you leave tonight, is the first one to your left on that altar to your left as you go through that door. Avalokitesvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, hears the cries of the suffering in the world. And if you take time to look at that statue, she's holding an urn by her heart, and it's tilted over. And the teaching goes, she hears the cries of suffering and pours out the, the oil of compassion upon the suffering. Avalokitesvara is neither male nor female, only when necessary appears as a woman when a woman is needed, appears as a man when a man is needed, appears as Mrs. Tompkins, as peer, appears as the neighbor with the pot of gravy, appears helpful in any way needed. The teaching goes on to say, you are the Bodhisattva of Lakitesvara. You are the Bodhisattva called to be what is ever needed at any moment, at any given time. Walking down the street, you see someone fall, just simply walking over and giving them the hand, Avalokitesvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion. We do not have to make big projects out of this. We can do this in the house. When you know that your mother or father or your sibling or your spouse is just having a bad day, we all have them. I've got about 372, I can tell you about, just in the last year, okay? Just having a bad day, and we remember that before we strike out with anger. We call upon patience that is already within us, the Buddha said. All the patience in the world, you need to be patient, exists within you. There's no excuse. There's no excuse. All you need to do is to declare it. All you need to do is to call it up. We meditate for long hours, the monks and I, as you are called to do the same, to train this mind that has wandered off with so much distraction, to train it to stay present to this body and to the gifts that exist within this body, this miraculous body that within a year, with the help of others, with the help of bodhisattvas, brought a cancer that was supposed to kill me into remission. This miraculous body that responded, I'm confident, in the same way to my mother that I witnessed my daughter respond to her mother. This miraculous body whose soul or spirit or heart, whichever you prefer, longs yearns for goodness in the being it occupies and in the world. But I'm telling you, if you just keep watching the news and just keep getting upset about what you see and go back to your isolated corners, nothing is going to change. And those powers that are active 
They are active. If you don't know that by now, you haven't been paying attention. Those powers that would rather hate and separate families and separate thoughts of love for thoughts and, and substitute them for thoughts of hate, those powers, they never stop. They never get tired. They never get complacent. They never get lazy. Because there's a lot to be afraid of in the world when you're alone. And fear is what drives that. We are called to dominate the fear within us and to do something about it through our meditation and our prayer and our benevolence toward each other. This is how we change it. Gandhi said, you want change? You must be the change you want the world to be. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. And so Gandhi, who was enjoying somewhat of a good life as an attorney, and what an attorney made in his day, decided to give that all up and become what he became. And look what he did. One little old, bony, frail man conquered the most powerful empire of his time and threw them out of his country. And how did he do it? With one word. No. No, I will not hate. No matter how many times, when he was asked about his revolution, to define it, he said, here is my revolution. No matter how many times the British strike me with their sticks, I will not rise to strike back. No matter if they break my body, I will not rise to break theirs. Simply a declaration, no. Was it easy for him? No. Was it easy for those in 1776 to make the sacrifices they made to liberate us from the chains that bound us at that time as a nation? No. Was it easy for Jesus? Was it easy for the Buddha to be rejected and have to leave his own country because of his uh, uh, resistance towards the caste system of that time and so forth? No. It's not easy to love. Anybody in here that's ever loved anybody knows that. And anybody in here getting ready to love somebody better be ready. It's not easy to love. It's very difficult. It requires us to go to places we would rather not go to. It requires us to befriend those we would rather not even talk to. It requires us to do work. We need a new language. We need the language of brother and sister, of friend, of neighbor. If we have forgotten that language, we can remember it if we are sincere and if we really mean it when we say we want a different world. But once again, I say this, that world will never come unless we make it, unless we are the change we want to see in the world. Community is the spirit. It is the spirit of the entire universe. When I, a student of Dharma, look at the real form of this universe, I see an interdependent and interconnected interaction of cells and molecules and atoms and ecosystems 
and existence making it what it is. When I, a student of Dharma, look at the real form of the universe, I see relationship. And we need to speak the language of that reality, that existence, if we are ever going to know it in here and in our homes and in our streets and in our country and in our world. If not now, when? That's my story and I'm sticking to it. How's your turn? Because I'm done. <laughs> hey, I'm in remission. I'm getting drunk. <laughs> Your thoughts, your questions? Hi. Uh, my name's Tom. I'm here with my wife, Bree. We're from Maryland. Hi, hi, uh, hi. It's my first time being here, so thank you. Welcome. Um, but what you're saying about relationships really uh, sounds valuable. We're both uh, high school teachers in Maryland. And we've adopted a, a restorative practices model um, where we're really trying to focus uh, on building relationships before we even start uh, you know, getting into instruction with, with the idea that no one's really gonna learn anything from you unless you build that relationship with them. So I can see the value of what you're saying and I uh, look forward to kind of continuing that work. Thank you. And thank you for that work. Um, I would just change something you said quintessential again as you just shared as you know from the work you've started and the work I've been doing for 44 years I am convinced that outside of relationship there is no possibility there is no possibility and our schools uh, we are currently involved in learning more about how we can get into the schools uh, with mindfulness and meditation training as a way of developing relationships with students. Today is also the anniversary of Columbine, that tragic, terrible event when 17 students who would have never imagined it were murdered in their school and what have you. So such work as yours, I, you know, it's like ridiculous for me to even suggest it's so valuable and needed. It is quintessential. It is quintessential that our children feel safe. It is quintessential that our children know that adults, whether as parents or teachers, those of you who are also teachers and professionals in those fields, will be there for them in relationship with them, not when the tragedy strikes, but to prevent the tragedy from striking. So thank you, and thank you for your work in Maryland. Thank you for thinking of joining us this weekend. It's a long ride. We're in Maryland. We're in Cecil County, so it's probably two hours, but we're staying with um, her family in Sea Isle tonight. So. Oh, Sea Isle, down your neck of the woods, Rob. <laughs> great, great, thank you. Thank you very much. Anyone else?
I think this is the first time I've shut them up. <laughs> Might be a short night, Roshan. <laughs> Hi, kiddo. Hi. Uh, good to see you. Good to see you. Um, our, we ha I live in a little town called Laurel Springs, uh, and um, it's probably one of the smallest towns in New Jersey. There's Tavistock and Hinella, then I think there's us. <laughs> and um, we've been, we're at the tail end of um, um, the economic whatever uh, that exists in South Jersey. We're kind of, you know, as the further on you go down the pike, um, there's that whole kind of economic gap and not much development after that. And anyway, uh, there was, there's been two things that have really helped us um, quite a bit uh, in terms of community. One is um, I live next to a park that long ago one man kind of um, uh, cleaned it all up by himself almost and dedicated it to Walt Whitman. And so a few years ago they had a dumping, the town dumped concrete down there or something, but everybody got livid about it. And um, so they made amends and they got the county involved somehow. I think our mayor had a lot to do with it. But um, all of that's kind of been that, that focus on repairing that um, and that love and energy needed to do it uh, has created this beautiful little park down there now dedicated to Walt Whitman, um, who's got to be, again, just a great um, you know, figure to have in your town kind of thing, we have a little house dedicated to But we're fortunate at, to have had that, because that's something everybody can connect with. And um, we had a big cleanup, and we had Boy Scouts there. We had, they had a great time, the kids. I just love seeing them in the dirt and playing, and all oh, these leaves. And thank God the mothers can go, you know, because there was all these crappy leaves all over the place, and they were getting dirty, and it was just great. And, but, but that kind of thing, um, I, I, I think, is, is something that can really, really help. So if you can find something in your community, and start maybe with just a couple blocks, you know, mm -hmm. um, and canvassing your neighbors, what do you want to see? That, uh, that we had a minister in town do that. What do you want to see for this town? What do you want for this town? What can you feel you can do? Yeah, because that's your town. Yeah. That's your town. Mm -hmm. That's where you live. And I want to take what she just said and expand it to this. Everybody lives in the town that is your town that you live in. And it belongs to you, just like we all live in, an, in this nation that is our nation. It's not just the nation of a few. It belongs to us. So on your block, as Nancy suggested, on your... Uh, in your county, in your state, in your country, what do you want to see? Mm -hmm. And get about the business of doing your part, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter what it is, but the business of doing your part to making that happen, to making that happen. You see, instead of waiting for somebody to make it happen. You know, one of the, com uh, one of the uh, comments over following the tragedy of the fire of Notre Dame this past week, um, one of the comments that I heard in the news uh, channel that I was watching that day was from a Frenchman who said, uh, we've already raised a billion dollars 
to restore Notre Dame. But Notre Dame was dilapidating and falling apart apparently for years and they couldn't get any money from anyone to help fix it. So why do we wait for the tragedy, you see? We have to stop waiting for a reason. Isn't the state of the world right now reason enough? I love Walt Whitman. I hope they got some of, some of his poems oh, laid yeah. out there. Great, great, great. No else loves him. You know Deacon Jim Casa? He's a he's a uh, Rhodes Scholar of Walt Whitman. So if you ever run into Jim Deacon? Jim Casa, he's at Sacred Heart in Mount Holly. Oh, okay. He's been here with uh, Rabbi Simon and I when okay. we did our our, our show <laughs> together. The the. The three, what, whatever it was called. Three amigos. <laughs> the three amigos, <laughs> and what have you. And uh, he's, a, he's, he's a fanatic of Walt, Walt Whitman. Yeah. He could probably quote him in his sleep standing on his head. <laughs> Anyone else? Hi again. Hi. I think something that I am aware of and experience, which I think has a poignancy that's sometimes difficult to embrace, is since mindfulness has entered now the United States, sometimes it's presented and people use it in a way, like when I went to a seminar with all fellow clinicians, oh, look at what tools we have. So what's so sad about that is that the mystery is removed, the unknowingness that is needed, and the sacredness. And it's going to have a shrunken experience. Already has. You know, and so I think one of the difficulties when you say why do we wait so long is because we're so in our heads and don't operate from the ability to feel our heart and soul yeah. and therefore the other's heart and soul that it takes on less of a meaningful yeah. And that's where that version you make reference to of mindfulness, how it is taught in the marketplace. Yes. You know, the sad thing is that John Kabat-Zinn, who started all of this, got this from his Zen master. Mm -hmm. Okay, learned this in Zen training as a layperson monk in that particular community. But the mighty dollar ate him over and he made a lot of money mm -hmm. on spreading mindfulness uh, techniques and training and so forth. But I agree with you that um, you know, that version has left out the fact that we train, and I speak as a monk now, I've been training for 44 years in mindfulness and in meditation in order to be in right relationship with others. So this whole notion of mindfulness training, mindfulness practice is again, as the reading I shared about the blessing, not for me alone. It's not to make me more prosperous or just to help me with my stress level, but to bring me into relationship. Everything we do, whether it's meditation or mindfulness, is intended to break down the barriers, as Rumi wrote about it, when Rumi talked about love this way. He said, our task is not to go in search of love. Our task is to realize we already have it. 
and to break down the mental and psychological and emotional barriers that prevent us from seeing that. So mindfulness practice and training, meditation, is intended to awaken us, reawaken us, if you would, which is what I prefer, to, again, each other. So if our spirituality, whatever that may be, whatever we call spiritual, if that spirituality does not help to strengthen my already aware connectedness with others, but bring me into more relationship with others and the world, then I, I, often, re I often consider that to be a very false faith. So hopefully you had this experience when you were going through your medical condition where you met an actual healer, that even if they didn't know it, they were doing Tom Brin and taking in yes. your pain. Yes. But most of us don't need that in the physicians and the healers or the clinicians. Mm -hmm. Not that these people aren't, don't have the intention to heal, but the missing piece is something that if you tend to be intellectual, you put aside, unfortunately. Well, let this be some glimmer of hope for you. Mm -hmm. My oncologist was one of the most spiritual kids, younger mm -hmm. than me, maybe in his early 40s one of the most spiritual, compassionate beings I ever met. And he just doesn't know it, you see? And he just doesn't know it. So if we're lucky, we run into clinicians like that, if we're fortunate. But again, more and more, we need to remind them. As I reminded him every time uh, I would visit him and he would behave in the, exactly the way I needed him to behave at that moment. Uh, I never left the room without giving him a hug and whispering in his ear, you got this, okay? You got this. So, so those we in the cl clinical field that we recognize, we need to affirm and lift up. And those we see that just seem to be missing that one little piece, we need to support them some way too by uh, by saying maybe like I had to say to one doctor who came to visit me in the hospital one day, you need to leave now. <laughs> okay? All right. There are doctors in the room, so be careful. <laughs> They're not used to that. Thank or, or you. I guess you could say be more present and be contained yeah. in this room. No, no, this guy wanted him to leave. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Anyone else? So where do I begin? Buddhism says we begin in the only place we can begin, with ourselves. So I can only give you what I have. So if I don't love myself enough to take care of myself, how can I help you realize that for yourself? How can I change the world from this very disconnected to this very interconnected and interdependent, compassionate world? I must begin with myself. I must begin with myself. 
So there's this word that people too often mistakenly believe doesn't exist in Buddhism, but exists in Buddhism and faith-based religions is also faith. We just talk about it a little differently, but we mean the same thing. You must begin with faith in yourself. Now, what does that mean? That means you may not believe what I'm telling you about you. You may not believe that you are this wondrous, miraculous Buddha that the Buddha declared you were 2,500 years ago. You may not believe that. You may not see that yet. You may not even understand how that's possible. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. I sometimes say to people, you're a Buddha. Act accordingly. And that's where you begin. You begin by acting accordingly. And what is a Buddha in relationship to himself or to herself? And that is the same loving and compassionate Buddha we would hope you are to others. To treat yourself in a way that, you, that reflects that you merit wholeness and healthiness and well-being. So when you take a look at the prescription that the Buddha laid down in the Fourth Noble Truth, known as the Eightfold uh, Noble Path, it is a prescription for what we're talking about. And it begins with, first of all, right understanding, which also is sometimes translated as right point of view. And by right, he means what works, not right as opposed to wrong, like I'm right and you're wrong. When he uses the term right, he means what works. What works to bring about this wholeness of self, this sense of wonder of self, recognizing that you have an unbelievable body that does things while you're not even consciously aware of it doing, all the time to sustain you and to keep you going. Recognizing that your mind has unlimited potential to learn whatever you wanted to learn and to become whatever you want to become. You may not believe that because the circumstances and situations of your life, your personal experiences up to now has convinced you otherwise. So this is where faith comes in. Whether you believe it or not doesn't matter. Whether you believe it or not does not matter. You act accordingly. So you start to do small things in your life to take better care of yourself. Put down the sugar. Drink more water. Get more rest. Laugh more often. Have some fun. Listen, you have to have fun 90% of the time. Okay? So the formula is 90% of the time, whatever it is you're doing, don't do it unless you're going to have fun. I'm an old Star Trek Trekkie. And Captain Kirk the only real Star Trek captain of the universe. <laughs> captain Kirk, whenever he was given a mission, always asked the question, will it be fun? <laughs> Before he would take it. You have to have fun. You have to laugh. Let me tell you something my cancer has taught me. You have to have fun. Okay? When I think of all the years, I was just too serious about life. You have to have fun. And so you have to laugh. And you have to help. And the best way to laugh is to laugh with others. So have some fun. Take care of your bodies. Don't take them for granted. If you had told me 10 years ago 
because this is what they told me, that the tumor that was growing in me was there for 10 years. If you had told me 10 years ago that I had a tumor, I would have laughed you out of the room, or that I was going to one day have cancer that could have very well taken my life, may still take my life, it's only in remission. If uh, I would have laughed you out of the room. But you need to know that I take my body a lot more seriously today. You don't have to wait for that to happen. Do it now. Take, you know, I watched a, uh, a, um, a naval admiral talk about this. And it's a practice that my first Zen teacher, who was my father, taught me. Make your bed in the morning. Watch what happens when you go back to your bed at night when it's made. It means something. It feels so good to go into when you've made it in the morning after you get up. Take time to enjoy the foods you eat, to smell them, to taste them. We're going to conclude the evening with my most favorite ceremony, the rendition of the Japanese tea ceremony. And what is at the heart of that is being fully present to every moment of the ceremony. That includes feeling the warmth of the tea in the bowl, feeling the bowl itself and the energy of the person who made it. When you can get to that point in your life where you touch and see things in a way that they fascinate you, mundane things like a bowl of tea fascinate you, you're on your way to what we're talking about. And then while you're taking care of yourself, take care of others. Take care of your spouse. Don't take for granted any moment with them. I often say to people on 9-11, every single one of those people in those towers assumed they were going home. And every single one of the people they left behind in their homes assumed that those people were coming back tonight. Say goodbye like you really mean it. Say hello like you really mean it. Say I love you until your voice runs out. Say it every chance you get. Say it to your spouse. Say it to your children. Say it to your friends. Don't take a single one for granted. Ten years ago, a room full of people, one out of 20-some people got cancer. One out of three get it today. That's what they told me. Think about it. You see? You can pull out of this driveway onto 206, and a truck driver falls asleep from not taking care of his life, comes through that red light. It has happened a dozen times since I've moved here, where you hear the helicopter fly in and take out the poor soul that was hit. Take not a moment of life for granted, because as we say, as you will hear me repeat, as we have repeated in this monastery hundreds of times and in monasteries and monasteries throughout the world millions of times, gone, gone, forever gone. There's no getting it back. Not the moment, not the person, not the, not the opportunity. So take nothing for granted. If you can just begin to apply these few small steps in your life, I promise you, the remembrance of miracles. 
the remembrance of someone who could no longer hold the paintbrush in his hand to do the painting and turned to his friend and said, see that rope? Tie it into my hand. Tie it into my hand. Saying, never give up. Never give up. Never give up saying I love you. Never give up saying goodbye like you mean it and hello like you mean it. And take every breath you take as sacred and as gift and as grace. And every exhale, add to that exhale an intention to spread your blessings throughout the world. And you've got them. You've been blessed. Bless others with them. Just getting it. Getting what? You and those you love are going to die. They are not going to be here forever. Now that's not the bad news. Here's the bad news. You and they haven't a clue when. And you live your life as if the opposite is true. You have to stop doing that. Just stop doing it. Every moment matters. And if you can remember that every day, no matter what it is you're doing, when you get into the car, remember you've got, you know, what, seven tons of metal and steel underneath you? <laughs> I tell people, I, you know when I started following the speed limit? When I first moved here, the night before we actually moved into this place, uh, two other monks and I were in the car together and we were driving down Tuckerton Road, the long, seamlessly endless road between here and Marlton, New Jersey, and so forth. And we're driving, and it was dust, and the sun was just going down. And suddenly I saw uh, there must have been 20 deer crossing the road, and I had never seen this. And I'm an old country boy. You know, in my summer days, I went up to that place where my father lived and what have you. But I never seen so many deer one time cross a road. And I brought my car to a screeching halt. And when the deer crossed, finished crossing the road, I started up again and to the right was the sign, 45 miles an hour. And I've never gone over it since. 40 miles an hour, 25 miles an hour, whatever it is. Just little things like that, if you can begin to remember and think about them and not forget them. Say goodbye when you mean goodbye and say with all your heart and say hello with all your heart. And God forbid, don't stop saying I love you. Not only with words, but with your actions. Hug them till they say enough. And even if it embarrasses you, do you know how much I embarrass my daughter? Oh, she loves, she, I love it. I get so much pleasure out of it. She's, Daddy, stop kissing me. Uh, since the day we first met, I've been in love. And I haven't forgotten it. And I don't take it for granted. Don't you? What time is it? You want to check the pot? Any questions?
I'm hot. Are you hot? About how I kiss my my dog and cat too. Yeah. And my animals. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Anyone else have pets in here? Am I the only one that says, I'll be back. I love you. I'm just going down to Wawa. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, think about all they give us. They're the only creatures I know that you can kick in the butt and they still come back for more. Yeah. And never, never are disloyal, never are lo not loving. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good, I feel better now. <laughs> Anyone else? So, when the pot is ready, that's what my mother used to say, get away from that, the pot's not ready. When the pot is ready, we are going to end the night with what I thought was only appropriate for Passover and Easter, and that is a sharing of a bowl of tea. Senrikyo, who was a Zen monk and the creator of the Japanese tea ceremony called Chanoyu, part of a Zen practice of monks from the day it first arrived from China into Japan and was refined by the Japanese, known as Chado, the way of tea, was designed by Rikyu to bring together exactly what we were talking about tonight. People estranged from each other, fighting warriors of the samurai and so forth into an environment that not only encouraged but insisted on relationship. The uh, shogun or president of, of that particular clan of that time called upon Rikyu to design a way in which the warlords could be invited to a, have a cup of tea, but in a way that expressed peace and the desire for peace and the desire for relationship and the desire for uh, reconciliation. And so Rico designed the tea ceremony. I'll tell you a little more about it. Where are we? Are we close? Yes, sir. Okay. Good. Uh, just, yeah, why don't you bring it in now? And so Riku designed the tea ceremony, and when he finished his design, he uttered these words, all can find peace in a bowl of tea if they know how to prepare it and if they know how to offer it. So I'm going to give you a quick lesson in tea etiquette. We share one bowl in this particular ceremony, and the tea that I am making for you uh, you need to know has medicinal and healing properties. In fact, in Zen monasteries, it is also used uh, during long hours of meditation called sashin, where uh, the monks and I and, and monks throughout the world meditate through the night for a period of five to seven days. And so it's used at night to not only help us stay awake, but if a monk has a cold or a monk feels ill, it is often the, the, the kind of medicine that they give them uh, to help heal their bodies. So the tea is matcha, as it is pronounced in Japanese, a green tea, a powdered tea, that you'll witness me prepare for you. And then we share the bowl with each other. So if you have a cold or if you are concerned about catching a cold or anything like that, even after what I've told you, that's perfectly all right. So I want to just give you, again, a brief instruction on how you will share the bowl. And I will pass the bowl to you first. 
and then we'll do this side of the room and then that side of the room and then the bowl will be brought back to me. You always hold the bowl with both hands. So when it is handed to you, take it in one hand and hold it as if you're cupping it in both hands. If you feel like you would rather not participate in, in tasting the tea, just simply lift the bowl in this manner as a kind of salute. If you're Italian, you know what I just did, okay? As a kind of just acknowledgement. And then carefully with both hands, hand the bowl to the next person next to you. And again, just simply sip from the bowl. You don't have to gulp it down. Uh, there's only a certain amount that I'll make in here for you. While taking the bowl, either sipping the tea itself or acknowledging like that, also hold in mind your intention for the person you're about to share the bowl with. Remember what Riku said, all can find peace in a bowl of tea if they know how to prepare it and they know how to share it. And so let our intention this Passover and Easter weekend be for a resurrection, a new life, a life of liberation from suffering for each other in this room and for those we love and care about and for the whole world. So that when you are taking, feel the bowl in your hands, cupping it, feel it in your hands, and when you sip the tea, taste the tea and feel the tea in your, on your palate. It has a unique flavor to it, and I'm not going to describe it for you because it's unique to everyone and so forth. But uh, again, we, we share this bowl of tea with the intention that we will be the beginning, the beginning of creating the world we want the world to be. And so we share it together, whether understood or not, whether believed or not, as family, as e pluribus unum, one out of many people in this room. One bowl of tea, one offering, to one person, everyone in this room in the same way and the same manner. So again, when the bowl is handed to you, take it with one hand, but cup it with both hands as you handle it and as you deliver it to the person next to you. So what we'll do is we'll go, uh, I will, I will uh, deliver the bowl first to you and then uh, we'll go down this way and you'll turn around and give it to uh, the people in the back, okay, yeah. And then if you can just send the bowl down this way, we'll start from uh, Bunan in the back there. And Bunan, go down the rear, back row, and then we'll bring it up to the front row so that it ends with Emyo here to my right. Got that? Don't worry about it. <laughs> While you're waiting, you can sit with your eyes closed. In meditation, if you like, and just be present to this moment.